Welcome to the History of Networking at the Network Collective, where we meld minds with the finest people in the networking industry. Today we're at Interop in Las Vegas talking to Martin Casado about the history of software-defined networking. So grab your favorite beverage and listen in as we talk about the history of networking. So Martin, welcome to the History of Networking. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. It's a great little show we have that uh, we just talk about the history of how networking came to be the way it is. So why don't we start by talking a little bit about your history and where you came from and how you came to be involved in the networking industry maybe a little bit and how you got involved in the software-defined networking problem. Sure. So, um, so I kind of took an unorthodox path here. Uh, I was actually kind of a failed physicist. So I yeah so so uh, in undergrad um, I I was kind of a physicist and in, in in the time in physics there was one of two routes there was like you're really good at math and you're basically solve equations and then for those of us that weren't smart enough to do that you would use computers to solve it so um, I took the second route and my first job out of college was basically doing computational physics at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And at the time I worked on the weapons program, actually. So at the time there was a lot of stockpile stewardship for the nuclear stockpile where they were using the big computers. And so I was a distributed programmer doing physics. Um, so I, I joined around full-time around 2000, started working in 99, but joined full-time in 2000 and then 9-11 hit. Right, and it was like the whole tenor of the nation changed. Right before it was like this holdover from the Cold War, you know, big weapons, this and that, and then it was more about the terrorist threat, right, which is more of an intelligence game. Mm -hmm. So at the time, I had the clearances because I worked on weapons. Um, I knew a little bit about computers, but primarily as a programmer, distributed systems programmer. Um, so they moved me over to the intelligence community. So I worked for the intelligence community from Afghanistan through Iraq. So and I was doing basically NetSec, which was the thing. So I did you know network security. Um, I worked in the operations team. Um, so that was kind of my first introduction to to networking and networking security. Really, like I understood the basic concepts, but from like the you know from an application operational, like actually implementing it and messing with it, kind of a viewpoint. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, yeah. Well, so I mean, the, my my background was a distributed programmer, and then it was basically you know we had these missions, whatever, and so the network was a piece. And what was so interesting at that time, which is listen, the government has very deep pockets, right? Like they can buy whatever they want, right? And um, but you know it's 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 kind of uh, deals with situations that market forces don't normally optimize for, right? Like when you're dealing with like nation state actors and you're dealing with war fighters and all of this other stuff. And there's this massive disparity between compute and networking in the following sense. So we knew what we had to do for a mission. So when it came to like compute, we would program it. I remember SE Linux came out of the NSA. So you could take an operating system, you could take compute and you could modify it because you know, like the market just simply didn't create things that we need. When it came to the network, that wasn't the case. When it came to the network, basically, like you got what the, the vendor sold to. Yeah, that was it. Like, and and like, so even though we wanted to change it, you couldn't. And like, it was it was it was. Listen, this was fixed all the way down to the hardware. Man, you looked at the hardware tables. You had an L2 table, an L3 table. You had to have an ACL table, like in hardware. And there was no changing these types of things. And you'd have a proprietary OS. That proprietary OS was basically a conduit to this fixed hardware. Um, and you didn't even have a programmatic interface for UI. It was a CLI, which was a, you know that's a that's a it's a user interface for humans, right? And so there's nothing about this, nothing. <laughs> it's barely even a user interface for humans. That's right. <laughs> Fair enough, right? So there's nothing about it. You had, you had fixed tables and hardware with a, you know, uh, an OS that was basically a pass-through with basically a bad user interface, and nothing about it said programming. So I peeled out of that in about 2003, and I, I started my PhD at Stanford. 
And this is the problem that I focus on. Was like, how can you make networking have similar properties to compute for those of us that wanted to do that? And, and the one last thing I'll say very quickly is, at the time, there was a lot of vectors pu pushing on networking, moving it into areas that it hadn't been designed for. So the original internet design was for organic growth to cover the planet. And you can see this in many different aspects of the design, right? And actually host-based, and actually research-y, and you right. know, very limited bandwidth links and things like this. Yeah. It, yeah, that's exactly right. And you can, I mean, this percolated through the entire design. I mean, the design was eventual consistency, right? I mean, like, it's so funny. Like, from a distributed systems perspective, the statement of if a link changes, we'll converge sometime, you know, like <laughs> is horrific, right? Or, or like, what is the service model the internet gave to an endpoint? Best effort packet delivery. So I was like, we'll send traffic, maybe. Like, that was like, that was <laughs> the, It'll get there when it gets there. Yeah, maybe. It, it maybe. may get there. It maybe. may get there, yeah. But there were requirements for this. I mean, this is the reason, because what's the alternative? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So to, to grow something to the size of a planet, organically, meaning you bring your box and, and I bring my box, that's the only way to do it. Yeah. So the internet was hyper-optimized for the one thing that it was set out to do, and that's why it did it so well. Yeah. But if you go back now to 2002, 2003, there were many different outgrowths that were, that were pushing it in, in directions it wasn't built for. Data centers were becoming massive. You had the start of the cloud, which meant multi-tenancy in the data centers, which means different requirements for endpoints. You had a massive explosion of mobility, especially around 2006, 2007, right? You had security, like what I was working on in the government. And so you know, now you're starting to see a lot of focus on, well, we need to push networking into different environments. And that's when I was at Stanford, so I started kind of tackling that problem. So let's talk about what that looked like when you got to Stanford. I mean, what did yeah. you build? What did that yeah. look like? And because now SDN is this movement that means a lot of things, yeah, yeah, yeah. and probably more than you intended when you started yeah, yeah, yeah. it. It's almost right? to the point of being meaningless yeah, now yeah. as a marketing yeah, yeah. term, right? Yeah. But it's what like the three switch. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, so it's definitely been diluted to the point of being meaningless. So, I'll, so I'll, I'll back into it on what I was trying to solve and why we ended up where we did, and then I'll give what I think is the definition of SDN for me. So. So I didn't start saying, we didn't, I, I use the word I, I was part of a research team. We did not start saying, you know, we're going to come up with a programming model for the internet. What we started with saying, uh, enterprise networks are different than the internet in that they're, they're limited scope. You know the endpoints, you know the users, you know a bunch of other things to them. They are insecure. So given that we can control so many aspects of an enterprise network, why don't we change the networking architecture so we can build a more sane system? I mean, if you think about security at an operating system level, you know users. You can do access controls on files, right? You have high-level names, you have high-level security policies, and then all the low-level stuff's handled by the OS or even like the hardware, right? Where networking is the opposite. All you had was like VLANs and ports and IP addresses. You had no consistent guarantees, et cetera. So the problem that we set out originally, this is 2005-ish timeframe, was, okay, we're gonna build a network architecture that looks more like a distributed system. When we were doing that, we realized that like, the core architecture couldn't do it because you couldn't 
get consistency guarantees. Like there's no way you could consistently say if a network changes, Coke can't talk to Pepsi. Like you couldn't say that because that's not how the internet was built. There was no namespace. You couldn't say Martine. You couldn't say something else. Um, there was no way to talk to any of the hardware elements. And so we kind of backed up and we kind of said, well, maybe we need to fundamentally change the architecture in a way that can be applied to many domains, not just security. So you can apply it to security, you can apply it to data centers, you can apply it to the WAN, you can apply it to mobile, whatever you want. So our first paper was called SANE, which was more focused on the security problem. Then we published a paper called Ethane in 2007, which was also the security problem, was kind of the use case, but we generalized the architecture. And then the, the kind of the most general form was a paper called Knox, which happened in like 2008, which basically said you should have you know, a network operating system that can do anything. So for me, SDN is an architecture, it's a way to think about building a network where you treat it more like a distributed system than you do as a fully distributed environment. For me, you can use SDN to build any type of network, including the traditional network. Like you can start with SDN and you can end up with a best effort network like the internet. And in fact, this is what Google did, right? If you look at kind of what Google, I mean like Google built a networking fabric, but it's just point to point connectivity. It's not like they're doing anything fancy. It's just, it's a set of tools and techniques and a way of thinking about network design that hopefully allows you to build more sophisticated things than just the original internet. That's what SDN means to me. Unfortunately, since then, it's been kind of pushed, the, the name term SDN has been pushed into every type of service it wasn't intended to. It can mean white box switching, it can mean open source, it can mean NFV, it can mean whatever. It can and mean like, programmable proprietary hardware, software, yeah, yeah. whatever. It, like, it could be an API wrapper on top of a CLI. Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, <laughs> like, yeah, so, so now it doesn't mean anything, but the original thing was like, you know, it, like, and, it was, and by the way, it wasn't for users, it was for people building networks. And this is another thing that people got very confused by. It was like, if you're, building an, if you're building a network system, like as in a programmer, as in a system designer, you can use these approaches to push them into different areas. And so that was, that was, that was the original idea. So what's your take on you know, the hardware, in hardware versus in software, right? So yeah. I mean, networking has been focused forever on the idea that real performance comes out of hardware, and I know mm -hmm. a lot of the solutions you came out with were more software focused. And yeah. so, what's, what's your take on that and, that, and, and the trade-off there? Yeah, you know, um, I think this is, again, one of these areas we need to be really careful about when we talk about, because the reality is, is there's, in the history of mankind, there's never been a piece of software written that didn't run on hardware. Sure. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Completely fair. So maybe, so hardware so, optimized forwarding is really what we're talking about here, yeah. So right. ASIC-driven forwarding, which is a right. hallmark of traditional networking. Right, right, yeah, it, right, no, no, yeah, that's, no, I think this is a great line of inquiry, and I'm glad we're having this discussion. I just wanted to step back and yeah. make sure that, like, so, so what, so there's, there's two discussions to have. One of them is what do you do on the endpoint, and that's one discussion, we'll have that one later. And then the other discussion is what do you do in the network. So in the network itself, you have high port density. The only way to do it is with an ASIC, full stop. Like you can't do it with x86, you can't do it with like, you know, network controls, you have to do it with an ASIC. So here was what the discussion boiled down to. The, the discussion boiled down to, can you build generality in that ASIC or do you need to have fixed forwarding modules? Which really boiled down to, do you need to know your tables beforehand? Do you need to know, do you need to have like an L2 table which is just for L2, an L3 table which is just for L3, and a set of ACL chains? Or can you have something that's more programmable? Now, you know, at the time, Broadcom and Cisco and all the traditional hardware people are like, okay, it's fixed. You know, we will tell you what you put in it and we're not gonna change that. And 
kind of we had an intuition that like wasn't the case that you can make it more general, but like we couldn't like fab ASIC, so we couldn't prove it. Um, I think, <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is, by the way, this is why this, the second discussion on the endpoint becomes so important because, like, literally, like, you know, you know, at the time we we're just like a bunch of kids that were saying things, but we weren't like the ones that are building the ASICs. Now we know that you can have the generality mm -hmm. and still have the hoarding, hoarding speed. And that's from like the work that's coming out of Nick McCune's group, yeah. who, who was my advisor with like P4 and with Barefoot. I mean, you can have all of the generality you need for, for you know, sophisticated forwarding function, all the programmability without any compromising on speed, yeah. which we all knew. I mean, like, I mean, any programmer knows this, but like we just couldn't prove. So, so I think absolutely you need hardware forwarding, 100%. Absolutely. And I'm a, I'm a strong proponent of ASICs, ASICs, ASICs over like x86 or something like that. I just think those ASICs should allow you to kind of mix and match tables and headers and, and things like that. So I think that question's largely been answered. There's a next question, and this is the one I think is more nuanced, but for me it's more interesting, which is, the question is, is, what do you do in the network? So more and more, my view is almost nothing. <laughs> that's exactly right. Oh, well, I think well, that's the right answer. Right? Yeah. I don't know that's necessarily the way that things are deployed at the yes. moment, but yes. Right. Yeah. yes. Well, but I mean, the vendors don't like that answer. The vendors yeah. are like, you do everything, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. You know, yeah. They're trying to how put can we drive there, value like, yeah, and how can we do vertical chaining? And, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So my, my view is, especially in the data center, but I think more broadly, is, is like literally the network should provide connectivity between any two points, as high throughput and as low latency as possible. And then you do some basic segregation of quality, right? So like some basic, you know, don't allow big flows to trample on small flows or like, you know, segment, you know, back up from this and that. And that's it. Like, and then get out of the way. But there's a lot of stuff that we want out of the networking function broadly. We want security. We want mobility. We want manageability. We want all of these things. And so my view is you should implement that at the edge in software for a couple of reasons. One reason is if you implement it at the edge, you have true distribution. I mean, you don't, you're not at an aggregation point. If you put it in a top of rack switch, or if you put it in a spine, you have to handle terabits, right. you know, which is, you know, that's why you're in the ASIC land. Yep. If you have it at the edge, maybe 40 gigabits per second, maybe 10 gigabits per second, and if you think about it, you're already doing all sorts of fancy stuff anyway, so why don't you put functionality there? It becomes a much easier problem to solve at and, those and rates and than at the, at the essentially aggregated rates. You're not doing as much work. You're yeah. stopping right. it at the edge, right? Exactly. Right, but, and, and you're not okay. wasting bandwidth. Right, because right. once I carry traffic to my top of rack switch, and then I do my QoS classification, right. or then I dump it into an SR flow, or whatever it or is. Or I kill it with an ACL. Or I kill I it with an ACL. On the floor. Now I'm just wasting <laughs> bandwidth. Right, but, that's but just crazy. The challenge here is state, though, because now you have distributed. You're distributing, or you're 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 yes. taking your policy and trying to implement it across many nodes rather than centrally. Hundred percent, absolutely. That's exactly right. Now you've got a real distributed problem to right. solve, which. You know, arguably is kind of the networking problem anyways is distributed. And, Absolutely. And, and that is like, listen, um, that's something that we're still trying to grapple with. I mean, it took us a while at NSX, you know, as we were building it to try and figure out like what are the right places to fully distribute? What do you centralize? How do you manage that state? So you're 100%. It becomes a distributed systems problem, which is kind of how we backed into this entire, how I backed into this entire thing to begin with. But what I always thought was very instructive because I would always have these discussions and, you know, these arguments normally with like these network architects. I'm like, what are we talking about? So I'd always do the following. I'd say, okay, imagine a computer. Imagine you've got an application sending a packet. What happens? Okay, well, probably you've got some code written like Python or some interpreted language. Then you've got some, you know, virtual machine for that thing. Then you've got user space for your VM. Then you've got kernel space for your VM. Then you trap into the hypervisor. <laughs> you know, so all of that work is happening. And then you've got some like basic network lookups that you want to do, which is like, it's actually, if you actually measure it end to end, it's like immeasurable. So we actually found that any sort of network functionality that you did at the end, 
and was was comparable to the amount it would take to DMA a packet on the wire. I mean, like literally, like like going from software to the DMA engine was about the same for like network lookups at the edge. So it turns out you can do a tremendous amount of work at the edge relative to all the other stuff that's going out. It's trivial, but for some reason, people were caught in this idea that oh, you know, we're overloading the endpoint or whatever. Um, I think now it's basically. Now it's basically pretty clear that that's the right way to do a lot of networking functionality. But I think what's going to happen, because networking has been so difficult, or I've been so slow to adopt it, is it's just being re-implemented in the application. Like right. this, this functionality is going to go somewhere. So, so now, if you look at, like, you guys are familiar with the service mesh? Mm -hmm. I mean, so what does service mesh do? It does networking, it does discovery, it does routing, it does load balancing, it does security. It just does it at a higher layer, right. and it does it as form of a proxy. But this is what happens if you don't, you know, if you don't, allow the functionality to go where it naturally rests and you push it out, it'll just go to another layer and add value at that layer. It's actually interesting, the other day I was reading a paper on a new database that came out, I don't remember the name of it, but they're actually talking, the database system is talking directly through dbdk, directly to the NIC. Yeah. And they're just bypassing the entire Linux kernel, everything, they're just going directly to the NIC and doing all their own work, which is pretty, like, an interesting concept in that they're just driving everything yeah, yeah, I've, um, so, I, so there's, no, 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 I'm glad you brought that up. So, I mean, I, I feel like, uh, especially over the last 15 years, there's been a lot of efforts to optimize, basically, from the application to the to network. The yes. And, and it's, it's, it's come in all sorts of forms, right? Remember SROV, mm -hmm. which, as far as I can tell, failed. And, the, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of things we're basically saying we're going to basically directly map the memory address of the NIC card into, like, wherever my application is. DPDK is another version of this. I mean, I think the reality is, is, is OS has evolved the way that they have for a reason, and that reason is protection. And like at some, you know, there there are certain applications which are so latency sensitive, you want to remove that protection domain away, but then you've removed the protection domain away. I mean, like, right? You know, like, <laughs> it's you there know, for a reason. Yes, you yeah. no longer have fault isolation. You no longer have con um, containment. So I think that the right model to do is to do the traditional model. Like any you know application-based data center does today, except for the few cases that you know, then you can pipe it, but understand what you're doing. I mean, another discussion I I, mean, I love to have is like, listen, any application-centric data center, like that's just imagine that there's no networking, it's just an L3 network with a bunch of applications doing stuff. Like you have all of the stuff that you're doing in networks today, anyways, right? It's just done at the application layer. So I don't see why you can't put that in a software layer just below it to unify it. Yeah, sure. So we, I mean, so we've talked up to your, you know, to the research program yeah. at Stanford and, yeah. right. and and your doctoral. So how did that turn into Nasira, Nasira, yes. and then eventually <laughs> yeah. Uh, NSX? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, so I was peeling out of Stanford. Um, you know, this is 2007, so um, four years later. And uh, yeah, actually, I was going to be an academic. I had a faculty offer from Cornell, um, but the NSA had approached us, and they really liked what we were doing. And so they offered to give us money to start a company. And so Nick McCune, my advisor, Scott Shanker, who I did research with as well, and I started a company in Asira. Um, and we peeled off some of the original research team to go do that. And at first, we were just kind of going to solve like the operational problem in networking, especially for security. So we were kind of building this NACI, you know, network access control -y type system, where the idea was is you have a high-level policy language would do all of security. 
And I think probably the biggest aha I've had in my life, and certainly in the last 15 years, was when I went from SDN to network virtualization. Like, this was like a real aha. And, um, and I think people are still very confused about the, the differences between these two things. So if you look at a lot of the problems in the data center at the time, you know, people wanted, you know, customers would want, for example, security policies that would go with a VM, or they would want, you know, segmentation or isolation of different customers, or um, they'd want different addressing models. Like maybe they had an IPv4 physical network, and then they had an IPv6, you know, they wanted IPv6 um, for the virtual network connected to like the VMs or something like that. So there's like this whole collection of problems. And the, the traditional, SD, uh, like, uh, like us in the early days of SDN, we thought, oh, well, what we're going to do is we're just going to change, you know, we're going to build like this controller, and that controller is going to have a programming language, and you're going to program what you want. And then I realized that actually, pretty much all of these problems that they wanted could be solved with a virtualization layer, where virtualization is defined as follows. Remember, SDN is an architecture, so virtualization just means you have a thin layer where what's exposed is an abstraction that is independent of the physical layer below it. And that abstraction looks exactly like the physical layer below it as far as capabilities. So just like a hypervisor did to compute, we want to do the same thing for the network. So if, if you put this in place in software, it doesn't matter if it's in software, you put this thin layer in place, it would give you networks. Those networks would look just like physical networks. They would support any addressing layer you want, any topology you want, whatever the debugging tool chains. Um, but they had the operational model of like a VM, so you could create them dynamically, you could grow them, you can shrink them, you can move them, you can do all the things you want. And if you do that, it just solved this whole collection of problems, and more importantly, it did in a way that didn't change the way people think about networking or the tools that they used. So the problem with the traditional networking approach for that, um, the, the traditional SDN approach is like, we're gonna give you a new domain-specific language, we're gonna change, you know, we're gonna change all these abstractions, like maybe you're not even talking IP anymore or whatever, and now you gotta learn this new world. Network virtualization said, everything you know is the same. Debugging is the same, connectivity is the same. You just now have a different operational model that doesn't, you know, isn't tied to the hardware. And that's, and this is probably 2009 where we really, really understood that. Um, and we came up with what was called NVP then, which became NSX, which is a network virtualization layer. And we were really drug into this from the big clouds. So at the time, you know, we were working with Rackspace, we were working with a lot of these big cloud providers, and they all needed, they had one physical topology, and they needed multiple virtual topologies that they would give to their customers to connect actual real workloads. And so, you know, Nasira started as an extension of this SDN work. Somewhere in the middle, we had this aha that network virtualization is the instantiation we wanted to build. Now, we used SDN to build it, but like, these are two very different things. And that's when we built MVP, which became NSX. Interesting. So from there. <laughs> so what so happened going forward? Um, yeah. You know, and this year was a, it was, a, it was a pretty wild ride. I mean, when we started in 2007, like, you could almost have a business model, which was like, be smart and be from Stanford. <laughs> so, I don't believe you lucked into the whole thing, though. You're too smart for that. Well, but, but you know, um, you know, but... You know, I think startups really are Darwinistic systems, and I do think that you need a pressure, you know, to, to actually drive that Darwinism. You need something to make you focus and solve real problems and whatever. And at the time in 2007, literally you can just get money from VCs because you're from Stanford and this and that, and like 
you know, it was a new movement, so everybody wanted to talk to us. And so, you know, we were happy to talk to people and building a systems and whatever, but we weren't really focused on here's that one repeatable product market fit. 2008, the world ended, if you guys remember. I mean, the world ended, right? right? I, yes, you know, I'd just was... done a startup, you know. You know, I, I actually had this faculty offer. I could go be a professor if I wanted to. And the liquidity market just, like, ended. Yeah. And we couldn't raise money. Sequoia issued their rest in peace, good times thing. Like, I mean, it was a, it was a really big deal. Um, there's 12 of us sitting there, you know, customers weren't buying, VCs weren't giving money. And like, that was kind of the time where I knew it was like, okay, either we do this or we don't do this. And, and we spent a long time, right, like looking at the problem, thinking about it and whatever. And I mean, it was that kind of crucible, that crucible we were put into where you apply the heat, you know, and I, I, I actually turned down, I turned down the offer just to burn the boats. Cause I knew if I had that offer out there, I wouldn't have the discipline. So I turned down the offer. I had no offer. <laughs> I was there paying myself double minimum wage, no joke, double minimum wage during the biggest economic crisis since the great depression. And I knew that in that crucible, if something didn't come out, there was nothing to come out. And it was that tailspin where we were like, you know, there's a, there's a fundamental problem to solve here that applies to so many aspects of networking and it underlies so many problems. But it's a new behavior and it's a new buying center, it's a new category, so it's gonna be hard. And brick by brick, we built up that business. You know, we kind of, you know, we survived that until, um, you know, until 2009 or so, and then Andreessen Horowitz, it's the best venture firm in the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We'll let it go. Dis disclaimer: being a general partner. <laughs> but 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 actually, you know, so they they so they they provided our first kind of real venture round funding, um, and then you know we actually you know when we launched the company, we started brick by brick, just working with companies that we knew would benefit from virtualization specifically. It wasn't someone that was interested in SDN or had vague problems specifically. And so when we actually took the, um, launched the company, we were working with five of the largest companies in the world. It was AT&T, it was NTT, it was eBay, it was Rackspace, and it was Fidelity, right? And we had like large engagements, large production deployments with these companies. And we really wanted to focus on them because what we were good at was building systems, right? And, um, uh, and solving hard problems. And so, you know, I mean, I would say we got into about 20, you know, meaningful customers when, you know, the acquisition happened. We had a lot of interest from large companies, and we ended up selling to, to VMware, which is a very natural fit. And I'll just say one more thing. Um, it was maybe 2009, which really kind of led us to network virtualization. So these ideas combined at, the, at very similar times, but I remember looking at the growth of VMware, which was this real phenomenon at the time. And I remember thinking, you know, every one of those VMs has a virtual port. <laughs> you know? and, and they talk to the network they, that somehow, is, right? That's the most business thing yeah. I've heard you say. No, so I look at these things, like every one of those things has a virtual port. And at the time, consolidation ratios for the clouds are like 20 VMs to one host or 40. And like, so if you have 40 VMs that has a virtual port, man, that's a network. That's, that's more VMs than there are computers in like my you know, hallway and grad school, man. You need, like, networking in there. And then I took a broader view. I'm like, wow, you know, like, in 2012 or so, VMware is going to have more access ports than Cisco has physical ports. It's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Which means that VMware is going to be the largest networking company in the world. I mean, I mean that was kind of the way things were going. And and access points are always <laughs> hard to argue really that. Really use that in their marketing. <laughs> 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 yeah. But like, but like, 
you know, access points are always the, the most strategic ports in networking because that's where you put the intelligence because that's where you have the least aggregation, right? And so we were sitting there and we're like, listen, network virtualization has to happen. It's going to be on the end for sure just because of the nature of these things and that's where like, like the workload sits. You know, and the hypervisor is going to be the new access layer to the network. And so like basically the entire goal of Nasira was like how do we build value at the hypervisor layer? To build a network virtualization solution to take advantage of this. And so when we were acquired by VMware, it was a very natural fit, which is why we ended up building a billion dollar business in like four or five years, which is like is a very unusual thing in systems. But again, you had the basically the largest networking company that wasn't monetizing the network and wasn't adding value there, even though it wasn't considered a networking company, which is why the yeah, fit was so right. good. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, that's really cool. So, um, where you're, to, <laughs> you're not a VMware now, right? Yeah, so so, uh, so there's a step past that. So it's, it's not necessarily history of SDN, but you yeah. know, how'd you make that step out? And yeah. So what are you doing now? Yeah, sure. Well, so so maybe um, so 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 the so the VMware thing was actually really interesting. Maybe maybe do you mind if I talk about the VMware thing? Really oh, quick? oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and the VMware thing was like it was just a really interesting experience because it's one thing to have an idea about a technology and how it's going to be consumed, and it's another thing to actually watch it happen. Yeah. Um, you know, early on we knew there was a bunch of problems it could solve, but like you can't really take a sales force and say go solve people's problems. <laughs> you know, right? Like go go find a problem and sell into it, right? Like normally you have to be like okay, you know, here's the use case you look for, here's how you qualify and whatever. And so we got. Really Really crisp on what that was uh, at VMware because we're building the scalable Salesforce. I mean, I think by the time I left, it, the, like the NSX sales team alone was like 400 people, and that overlaid on a 4,000 person, right? So it was this kind of big effort. And um, and the, the use cases for network virtualization um, ended up being about 40% was actual classic network virtualization for like automated provisioning, right? Like if you wanted to play an application, it would make it easy. If you wanted to set up a new employee, it would make it easy. So it was like it was, it was the automatic provisioning for networking. About 40% was security, which is ironically the original use case, right? So this is kind of like you know microsegmentation, you know applying filters to the end, and like having the life cycle of those policies follow the VM. And then and then at the time maybe 10% was like you know inter data center type things, like you know if you have multiple data centers, like how do you kind of bridge those two together, maybe like into the cloud? And then you know the last 10% was just random stuff, just because virtualization is so generally applied. So it was, it was really cool to see it go from like. The SDN early work was like, you can build networks this way to network virtualization, which is a general platform to hear the, you know, actually how it's being applied. So I, you know, I, I stayed for four, I stayed for four years. Um, I decided to move out and join and investment. And I'll talk about that in a second. But an, another thing that I did, which, which um, I, I'm still involved in, and I really enjoy, which is um, I think SDN broadly and network virtualization has the ability to change a lot of things. Um, and I started getting very interested in the rural connectivity problem, right? So it's interesting, like um, in the United States alone, 23 million people are underconnected, it's crazy. And if you look at like indigenous tribes, like Native American tribes, um, uh, in rural areas, like 80% have no connectivity. I mean, it's nuts. And this is like, <laughs> like if you're not connected today, you're basically not participating in modern education, you're not participating in the modern economy. I mean, it's, it's just so different. Um, so I started looking at that problem mostly just out of curiosity. Um, and I realized it had all of the problems that traditional networking did, which is like, it's like if you just take a purely technical standpoint, there's no reason why you can't set up a cell tower for very cheap. Like you can't set up like, there's no reason you couldn't do it for like 10K. And assuming you have spectrum rights and you have backhaul, there's no reason why you can't just provide right. connectivity. The backhaul is what kills you most of the time. And spectrum rights actually. Spectrum, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, those are what really cost a lot right. of money. Right. So, 
Yeah, yeah. So it's a spectrum and, and backhaul, but also, also, you know, you have to set up a tower. You've got to buy all these Ericsson boxes and whatever. And so I, I started chipping away at this problem and with you know some ex Nasira folks, and we created this this little nonprofit. And actually, you know, we're sitting here in Las Vegas right now. I mean, if you go drive about three hours towards the Grand Canyon, we've wired up a number of these villages. Um, uh, using SDN that provide connectivity for regions that you couldn't before, and we do it for very, very cheaply. And one of the interesting ahas that I had doing this was to, to discuss that we just had, which is if you use SDN, you can take the cost of erecting a tower from, let's say, 150K, 200K, 250K to about 10K. So it costs us about it costs us about 10k to put up a tower, and what we do is we literally <laughs> go on like Alibaba <laughs> and buy like like antenna attenuators. There's a, there's, a, there's a company buy sell that I buy like cheap access points from. Like we flash it with our own software. We actually have a version like it's running Open vSwitch on there. We have a version of NSX. It's kind of like a network virtualization system that provides LTE. So it's like you know we have a distributed LTE core, and you can put these up. And it turns out over the last. 10 years or so, the Obama administration has been trenching fiber to all schools. So it's interesting, is so, so most schools will have fiber, almost 100% of schools. So if you go to a school in a rural area, they almost certainly have fiber in backhaul. And if the school wants to work with you, they can get access to EBS spectrum, which is licensed spectrum for education. So what we do is we go to these schools and these kind of uh, you know tribal lands, we're like, listen, do you want to provide connectivity to your students to do homework? Because they don't have, they can't do homework at night. They say yes, we apply for EBS Spectrum, give it to the uh, the tribe, and then we stand up these towers for almost no money, super cheap. They use backhaul at the school, and you can provide connectivity in this way. And this is like true SDN, meaning like you can, we don't have to set up an LTE core, we don't have to buy expensive gear, this is all software defined, it's like primarily based on open source. And so I think there's huge potential to apply SDN much more broadly out of like, you know, the enterprise data center. And I think that's, a, that's an example. That's really, really cool. It is, it's really cool. It actually applies to another network I tend to get involved in a lot, which is Greenland. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty deeply involved in Greenland and the Greenlandic problems, you know, of trying to get, they have these little 26 person villages off on the West Coast. Wow. And, well, that's a, probably a backhaul problem. Well, no, it's not just a backhaul problem. It's a microwave problem. I mean, right. it's everything because you have bad weather, you have, like, you can't yeah. put, you can't drag a cable into the sea in Greenland. Yeah. You have to dig 100 meters under the rock because there are these things called icebergs that bump down the coast. That's so great for undersea cables. Yeah, that's so good for undersea cables. So it's like, it's a really, you know, a hard problem. So, so, I've, so here, here's, here's what I'm saying. Um, so I, I actually think like, listen, you know, I'm, I'm an investor right now in Silicon Valley, and I always think of the fact that if I invest in a company that's changing the world, the reality is if it's internet connected, it's changing the world for 4 billion people, not, not 7 billion people, because half the world's still not connected, right? That's right. a big deal to me. Like, I mean, I really think that it's incumbent on us to connect with the rest of the world, and even though it's a cliche, like, connecting that 3 billion people is, is, is something that we should all be working yeah. towards. I mean, that's, right. the digital divide has never been as stark as it is now. I, I think, and so this is one of the, you know, kind of one of my passion projects, just, just looking at this. And I, there, are, there are a number of problems on the edge because it's the classic heavy tail problem. One uh, area I track very closely is um, satellite backhaul um, because I actually think that backhaul will be disrupted by satellite. I think the macro satellite movement's doing it. In fact, I made an investment, um, which announced pretty recently in a company called Astronus, which is trying to do this. I mean, the idea is, is you know, if, if you look at how backhaul was done 
Okay, so you can do what you're saying where you can trench fiber. Right. That works if you can trench fiber. If you can trench fiber. <laughs> That's like, you know, you that, know there's no dirt in Greenland. You know, you can't trench. Yeah, well, but also there's, there's places like, you know, uh, Amazonia and Brazil right. where you've got, you know, 3,000 different islands. I mean, like, you know, and each one has 20 people. I mean, right. it's just not a practical solution. And, and in Brazil where you can, you can trench if you yeah. want to, but then some local tribeman's going to come and yeah. destroy the cable on you anyway. So, so I, I heard this interesting thing. I heard that in... in uh, in in India is like one of the few places where it actually it's cheaper to do to if you want to go across India with fiber it's cheaper to put it in the water than it is to put it yes. across land because yep. of the number of, of uh, backhoes that will like disconnect so so like terrestrial stuff has its own set of problems but like the microsatellite movement's real like you know uh, you can have a team of forty people put a satellite the size of that chair in space these days for you know ten million bucks relatively cheap. And we know how to build these things to provide connectivity. So I think you're going to see a lot of options in space for providing backhaul. And then the problem is distribution. Yeah. Um, and I think SDN, this is where SDN comes into play. Like, I, listen, I, I strongly believe if you can get access to licensed spectrum so you're not dealing with all the point-to-point -point nonsense, like, you can build distribution networks anywhere for relatively cheap. And you can, you, know, you can have electricity be part of it, right? You can do, like, small solar setups, and you can do real connectivity. So I hope that the industry moves towards having basically a blueprint and a roadmap that people can download and apply to certain situations so communities are empowered to do their own thing. But I think a big part of that is getting them access to license spectrum. So, so what do you think about the change in the Internet since, since you talk about connectivity? Yeah. I know that Jeff Houston has written about this and I've written about this, that the change in the Internet from being widely distributed sources to like 80% of the traffic goes to like 5 to 10% of the destinations. Yeah. And, and I mean, do you think that's problematic from what the perspective you're talking about? Or is that like it's okay with you? Or is this something that the Internet at large should be pushing against? Um, well, I think you can look at that on many layers. So I, I, I feel natural systems almost always follow a power law. So, yeah. I mean, people always talk about distribution, but, like, how many systems are actually really distributed? Yeah. Like, I mean, like, the Internet certainly is not distributed. Peer-to-peer -peer was never really, like, I mean, yes, peer-to-peer -peer was a great idea, but at the end of the day, all of that centralized, all of that content distribution centralized. I just think it's the best way to build systems. If you take a system designer and you're like, build a system, you know, that does X or Y, like, some level of centralization is, is the, by far the best way, unless they're just trying to solve for, for things like resilience right. and, and maybe right. some, some scale and some, some access. And so I think that, you know, naturally you're going to see centralization from a system design perspective. I think it's good. Like, you know, I, I, um, I think that you see it on the physical layer of the Internet. I think you see it also at the content layer of the Internet. That said, I think there are broader questions if you move up, you know, above the network and towards issues of business or content, which are clearly having implications on all of our lives, right? And this to me is not an artifact of the internet, but more business, right? right yeah. Like, you know, listen, the, you know, modern capitalism has had to deal with monopolies in the past and had to protect consumers. And I don't think any of that goes away just because you have the internet. And so maybe, um, maybe there's a, there's a bit of a, a force multiplier in play, but I almost view it as the opposite, which is I think that in the past, if you won the trenching war, you won. Like if you were like a railroad baron, you won. If you were like... Um, uh, a telco you won because you owned all the capital assets. I actually think the internet almost is like in favor of the little person because you don't have to do a bunch of physical access 
to be very disruptive. You don't have to have a lot of capital assets to be disruptive. So even though we see like large aggregations of companies like Google or whatever, I mean, the reality is crypto could destabilize all of it or the next startup that does something and we have full funding systems for them to do it. And so I tend to, you know, like I, I, was, I was alluding to um, previously, I, I tend to believe that like we've got a very efficient system for, for creating innovation. Innovation will either unseat those people that don't innovate or cause them to innovate. I think we all kind of benefit. And so I'm kind of less inclined to meddle with that, you know, you know, with the, provi the proviso of we do understand as a society what it means to have too much aggregation of power, and we do have you know controls in place to to deal yeah, with that if needed. Sure. I'm not sure. I, I'm I don't think we're at that point where we need to, but I, I think this is not a net new. Right. I think the net okay. new is more yeah. that we can be a little more relaxed about it because like man, I've got you know ten startups I work with that are going to unseat all of the incumbents. So. Okay. <laughs> Good. Speaking of moving forward, is there yeah. anything that's happening now that, that really has piqued your interest yeah. uh, that maybe maybe our listeners haven't heard about or don't know about? Or um, I mean, it, mostly this is just kind of broad framing, which is like I from you know because because I've like kind of lived my life in the network for so long, I like to. Um, um, I like to view kind of you know what the next kind of areas of expansion are, and I think of it as moving up and as moving out. So I'll talk to each independently. Moving up is it's very clear to me that the value of networking is moving up the stack, right? You know, like I like to say networks are defined by what they connect. And originally they connected servers and then maybe VMs and containers. And now I think the endpoint is the API. I mean, it's, you know, if you have your, your smartphone and you have an app on it, it's gonna connect to something like 15 remote APIs, right? Twilio for SMS, PubNub for storing data, Stripe for payments, whatever, right? right? Mm -hmm. These are this is like real networking and real endpoints. And what's interesting about that layer, what's interesting about APIs, I mean, if you think about like what is the kind of the the address or the network visible content for physical machines, it was like it was like literally like IP addresses and ports and stuff, which don't mean anything. But at the API layer, you actually know what data is being used, what functions are being called. It's actually a semantically meaningful layer for the first time. So I think we're going to start reimagining a lot of traditional networking components that operated that layer that actually are kind of a lot more intelligent and actually have a lot deeper understanding of what's going on. So, you know, this is why our service meshes, I think, are coming up, but you see kind of new movements in the API gateways. Um, I actually think you're going to see new services like CDNs that are kind of just focused on APIs. You see new aggregation layers. There's a company called Rapid API, which is like trying to aggregate all the world's APIs. I mean, it's kind of a way to bring sense to this new endpoint. And, and, you know, yeah, I mean, for me, it's just this is the next step in disaggregation. Like, okay, you had mainframes in the 70s, and that kind of, you know, the mainframe kind of became the, the computer, the microcomputer, and then that disaggregated into software and hardware, and that disaggregated into, you know, you had like a full software bundle, like each application basically became an online service or a company. And now I think, like, we can zoom in one more time, we take one application, and we take a function of that application that's interesting, and that function now is a standalone company. Right, and so like. Well, we already see this in websites, right? Like when you go to any website, it doesn't hit one server; it hits hundreds of servers because sure. it's hitting double click and it's hitting, you know, YouTube to serve a video or Vimeo to serve a video or whatever. The yeah, case so might the be. entire, so the entire, yeah, internet is like basically becoming one large distributed system. But from an investor standpoint, what's really interesting is, before, you know, ten years ago, in order to have a viable solvent company, you'd have to basically solve a problem for a human. Like you'd have to have a web page, 
that was a full application. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, you, you, you build an entire application and like that was it. These days, you literally can provide something that's just useful to a program or a programmer that's just one function and not a full vertical application. And there's a ton of value there. And we see a lot of, we see examples of like public companies with billions of dollars that are just like, you know, it's, it's a function call in your program. I mean, an analogy I like to, to, to make is if you looked at back in the early days of car manufacturing, so, you know, the Ford Rouge River complex, which is like 1913, so one of the first Ford factories, like what went into this factory was rubber, water, and coal, and iron ore, and what came out was cars. And that was because the market was so small, there was no supply chain. And now if you look at the car supply chain, you've got tier three suppliers that'll provide a spring or an aftermarket camera or whatever, right? So the same thing I think is happening with, with computers. It used to be you had to do everything, everything from the sheet metal to like yeah, the, yeah, the, the chips. Yeah, and now it's like a function. Like you can provide a function and have a company because the right. market's so big. So right. I think APIs are the next point of disaggregation. And I think that you know there's a lot of infrastructure we have to build to support those. The second uh, trend, I think that, um, that networking is moving out, meaning it's a cliche, but it's true. Like networking is connecting everything, um, especially as we get better at building sensors that interact with the physical world, right? You know, I, I, you know, I saw a company that plants trees, uses drones to plant trees. I mean, we see companies that are smart video cameras. We see um, companies that are autonomous vehicles. I mean, like every mature major industry is going to be augmented by IT now because we're very good at the AI and the sensors to do that. And every one of those endpoints requires networking. So it's all the problems we've talked about in the past. Like if people always ask me, what's the number one problem of IoT and getting stuff connected to the internet? To me, it's the backhaul problem, right? Or the distribution yeah, problem. Yes, it's a traditional it is, networking yeah, problem. It is, it is. You know, and it's so funny. Like, I mean, I sit on multiple boards of companies that are in the space that are, you know, connecting with the real world and the networking has to follow. And so I think that's a very interesting area for, for people to look at. Excellent. I think we're coming up on time here. Uh, so is there any place, if people were interested in the things that you do and the things that you're working on that people can find you online? I'm sure you're many, many places, but. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. My Twitter handle is, I think, Martin underscore Casado. You think so? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. They know mine better than I do. It's okay. <laughs> I think so. And then, um, and actually, I think A16Z podcast. Mm -hmm. is yeah, a, which I do listen to. It's a great it's podcast. It's a very podcast. good source. And actually, you know, I write blogs there um, pretty frequently as well. And all of the stuff that I do is focused on core infrastructure, security, and networking, and then pre-chasm type company building. And so if there's any interest in that, I do recommend the A6C podcast and, and then our, our blogs. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Yeah, thank um, you. And thank you for, for watching and listening. And if you want to find more great content like this, the thenetworkcollective.com. Awesome. Thanks, and see you next time.